All right, it's good to be with all of you t- this morning. And one, so today our lesson is is going to be pretty much we're going to be discussing the at least four uh, main points or main teachings of the Catholic Church, and really I want to stress that we're not doing this to you know, try to, to berate the Catholic Church. What we really want to do is simply to look at the doctrines in light of what the church the church teaches and does does that align with what the scriptures teaches. And um, not really had a lot of interaction with Catholics, maybe just a few mostly of uh, the interactions have been with uh, people of various Protestant denominations that I really didn't know a lot about what the Catholic Church actually taught and actually believed. So it has been pretty much in, pretty informative for me. I uh, hope this is informative for you. I think it is important to at least know somewhat about what different churches and different re- religions believe. So at least when you know, we may be interacting with uh, those that are of uh, that religion that we can uh, at least have some uh, knowledge of what they believe and kind of have some knowledge of maybe some of their terminologies and, and really uh, how does the Bible address that? And uh, so this is really what we're going to be talking about is four main teachings of the uh, Catholic Church. One point that I think is really talked about a lot, and I think a lot of Catholics really emphasize, is they believe that the Bible is a Catholic book, that the Catholic book, that the Catholic Church is the uh, reason that the Bible is even here and exists. Uh, we're going to talk about the organization of the church. Does the, Catholic, the way the Catholic Church is organized, is it scriptural? We're going to be talking about apostolic succession, and just to kind of get a... Uh, little preview of that apostolic succession is really the belief that Catholic teachers today are infallible and that they have some, many of the, the same uh, powers and authority that the, uh, the, that the apostles have, getting tongue-tied here. And point four is can a priest forgive sins or does a priest have any type of power to forgive sins, which is another teaching uh, that the Catholic Church has known as uh, uh, absolution. The, the, <laughs> and so, point one we're going to go into is ideas: is the Bible a is the Bible a Catholic book? And uh, had this quote from Catholic.com says, "From the Gospels as historical documents, we learn that Christ founded the Church, but the authority of the Gospels as inspired writing rests on the words of the Church." From the book, the Bible is a Catholic book, and page 4 says, It was the Catholic Church and no other which selected and listed the inspired books of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you can accept the Bible or any part of it as inspired word of God, you can do so only because the Catholic Church says it is. And I think that quote is quite fascinating because there's a belief that the Catholic Church has some innate authority behind it and that they could determine uh, what was the inspired words of God. And so we're going to look at that concept of whether or not we can determine outside the Catholic Church what is the inspired word of God. And once we start thinking about inspiration or what, how can we determine that 
a book or a writing or a letter is inspired of God, I think there's a few questions uh, we have to ask. And how can we determine if a writing, if writing is inspired? And really we have to understand what this idea of inspiration means. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, Peter's writing says that prophecy came of no private interpretation and that, that men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And really what that, what that entails is that these men, if they are inspired, these things that they're writing, are not, they do not originate in their mind. It comes from the Holy Spirit and that, they, that the Holy Spirit is using them uh, to, uh, to write or to speak forth that Word of God. And we have to emphasize it is no private interpretation. These things did not originate in the mind of man. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus speaking to the apostles says that the Holy Spirit was going to come and bring to remembrance all the things that Christ had told, to, told them. So again, that these men, if they are inspired, that they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to remember what Christ had said, and if they are writing these things, writing these letters that they are from God Himself. Also, if they are inspired, if they are speaking the Word of God, these men could in some way prove that they are inspired. Even from the Old Testament, thinking about these prophets, they had some power to perform miracles, wonders, so on and so forth, in which they could really prove that what they are speaking are the things of God. In Hebrews chapter 2, and verse 3 and 4, it speaks of, it speaks of uh, the Word of God and that God bore witness to the Word through uh, signs, wonders, and miracles. And so, again, God's bearing witness to that Word. And so if somebody's speaking the words of God, God is going to bear witness, and they are going to be able to show, uh, perform some wonder, perform some miracle, in which people could pretty well... Uh, ascertain that, look, these people, they have some power and authority behind them and that what they're saying, that the, it is truth and it is from God Himself. Also, I think it's uh, fascinating that we have scriptures in which we see apostles actually viewing other people's writing as inspired as well. In Second Peter chapter 3, and verse 15 through 16, Peter, if you remember, he's writing about Paul's writings, that they are some things that he writes that are hard to understand. But in those few scriptures, we see that he equates Paul's writing, which is an apostle, by the way, as scripture. Also, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and verse 18, we're not going to look there, but Paul, he, he is, he is, he is he's writing to Timothy, and then he makes two points uh, uh, talking about, uh, well, uh, he's talking about the laborer being worthy of his wages in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, and he directly quotes from Luke chapter 10, I believe. And so Paul is actually quoting the book of Luke. And so what and he's also equating that with scripture. And so what we can uh, see is that that we have these apostles, Paul and Peter, who can prove that they are inspired, and they are pretty well determining and say, hey, these books, these other books, such as the book of Luke, they are inspired as well, and they equate those things with Scripture. And so we go through all that just, to, just for me to make the point that for them, then during the time which the New Testament was being written, nobody needed the Catholic Church to determine 
what was inspired, what writings were inspired or were not inspired. And so that means if they don't need them then, we don't need them now. We do not need the Catholic Church to determine what was the inspired Word of God. Another question I think is important when we talk about this topic is when did the Catholic Church give us the Bible? When did they determine that these, that these books were inspired and they cataloged them together into, into all into a one single big book? So there's three councils. That was terrible. So there's three, there's three councils in which the Catholic Church came together and really discussed the canon of scriptures and were determining uh, what was inspired, what was, uh, what was legit, and what was not legit. And so usually when you start, uh, start going back and looking at what Catholics uh, will say uh, about this topic is they, they focus on two councils, the Council of Hippo and the Council of Carthage. And they were made, and of course, Council Hippo was 393 A.D., Carthage was 397 A.D. And so they were, they were determining what, what was canon. What they don't really talk about is that it wasn't until 1546 A.D. in the Council of Trent that the Catholic Church officially recognized what the canon of Scripture was. And what's also interesting is that there was a different canon de determined as inspired or legit at the Council of Hippo and Catholic Council of Carthage. Those canons were different than what the Council of Trent was. And so if, you, if you're dealing with this and, and Catholics will say, well, we, we were uh, determining what the canon was all the way in 393 A.D., well, that was actually a different canon than what we see in the Council of Trent. So... It's kind of a half-truth here in which they really didn't determine what was inspired or not until really 1546 A.D. And so taking 1,500 years to recognize the canon of Scripture is not very reassuring. Really not reassuring on the so-called authority of the, Catholic, of the Catholic Church. And if they claim that they are the, uh, the true Lord's Church, Again, how, why did it take so long for them to recognize the canon? And why was they so confused throughout this history as to figure out what the canon of scriptures were? <laughs> also, where were, where were the books of the New Testament for these councils? You know, did people know about them? Was, did it just kind of, did, did, were these letters written during the time of the New Testament and they kind of just disappeared or people kind of forgot about them until the councils? Well, that's really not the case. In 180 A.D., this fellow, I won't even attempt to pronounce his name, so he's writing this book, it's some Latin name here, but it's really, you can kind of look at it and say it's really it's a book against uh, various heresies. And while he was writing this, he has quotations from all the books in the New Testament with the exception of Philemon, 2 Peter, 3 John, and Jude. And so, what we can glean from that is this man had knowledge of pretty much most of the New Testament scriptures. And what that means is that he had knowledge of all these scriptures. It means that all these letters were being circulated around uh, that area. That people knew pretty well what uh, the scriptures were and they could at least uh, quote uh, these New Testament letters. Also, this fellow by the name of Origen 
around 240 A.D. So he's writing, it's called the homilies on Joshua. It's kind of like, it looked like in this immediate context, it was kind of like a commentary on Joshua, but I don't, I don't know. But in the context here, he's, he's talking about the uh, Joshua and the wall of Jericho. And notice he quotes, really, he, he talks about pr- really every book that we have in the New Testament in this short paragraph. He says, Matthew first sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also, Luke and John each gave forth a strain on their priestly trumpets. Peter, moreover, sounds loudly on the twofold trumpet of his epistles. So also James and Jude. Still the number is incomplete, and John gives forth the trumpet sound in his epistles and apocalypse. And Luke, while describing the acts of the apostles, Lastly, however, came he who said, I think that God has set forth us apostles, last of all, and thrown forth on the fourteen trumpets of his epistles, threw down even to the ground the walls of Jericho, that is to say, all the instruments of idolatry and the doctrines of philosophers. In this few, few verses, we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the two epistles of Peter, James and Jude, John, and then his apostles, his epistles, and the Apocalypse, which would be the book of Revelation, then Luke with the book of Acts, and then we have Paul with the 14 trumpets of his epistles. Now, we know that Paul wrote 13 epistles, and I think, not getting into debate here, but I think this 14th epistle is the book of Hebrews, so just going to throw that out there. But we do know that, he, that, that really here we have all the New Testament books known by this fellow at, at, at 240 A.D. And so again... These things were well known by a lot of people. And really, this, the way he words these things, he talks about Matthew first sounded the priestly trumpet in this gospel. Talk about these priestly trumpets. I don't think there's a really good, uh, good uh, argument that could be made about this guy not thinking that these scriptures were inspired, that they were in scripture, and that they are, that they are at the very least very, very important for Christians to know and to read. And again, like I said, it's pretty well going along with what's already been determined in Scripture that the apostles wanted these letters to be circulated. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 16 says, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of Laodiceans, that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 27 says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. So again, this idea that these things were not going to just be like the epistle, the, the epistle to the Corinthians is not just going to be read to the Corinthians and then it's just going to be tore up and forgotten or, you know, hid away somewhere. These things are going to be circulated. So pretty well see that this is exactly what was going on for centuries before the, even the Catholic Church got together to determine what the canon of Scripture was. Also, we have copies of Scripture not from the Catholic Church. We have two, again, won't try to pronounce these names, but we have pretty much copies of Scripture from the Greek, or, two different sets from the Greek Orthodox Church, or at least found in the monastery of the Greek Orthodox Church that date to the 4th century, or in as far as this other one, this Codex Sinaiticus, that stated no later than 350 A.D. So, Going back to that original point that we read, the quote that says that pretty much the only way we can know if the scriptures uh, of the scriptures and that they are inspired is because the Catholic Church says it is. Well, that's simply not true. 
because we had other churches that had copies of scriptures and we could pretty well, we had people well before this time period that knew what the scriptures were and it can be very easily determined apart from the Catholic Church what scriptures were inspired as well. So, again, is the only reason we can know of scripture through the authority of the Catholic Church? No. We could have known this. The Catholic Church did not have to exist for us to know uh, what the scriptures were. And it was around, the canon of scripture was around and recognized long before the Catholic Church officially cataloged the books into the Bible. Now, I will give the Catholic Church credit that they, were, that they got all these letters, these epistles together and bound them in one single, law, in this one single book. I'll give them credit for that. But again, it does not give them uh, some type of legitimacy in the sight of God. That it does not mean that they are a true church or that they are somehow recognized by God as being in a good relationship with him. And we, and, and we have to realize that God did use evil men, nations to accomplish his will. So just because people of different churches or different denominations do good things does not necessarily mean that God is in good graces with it. And also, we'll get into this later, uh, later in the PowerPoint, but if the Bible is a Catholic book, why does it contradict the Catholic Church so much? Why are there so many doctrines of the Catholic Church that either the Bible talks nothing about or simply flat out contradicts it? So, we're going now to the organization of church. How is the church supposed to be organized? Now, if you have any familiarity with the Catholic Church, you know that they are, there's a various hierarchies. You have the Pope, you have cardinals, archbishops, uh, and you have this really big organizational structure. Now, is that scriptural? Is that the way God intended for the church to be organized? And so, really, uh, we have several key scriptures that talk about the organization of the church. And we really, what we first have to realize is that Christ is the head of the church. It's not a pope. It's not a certain bishop. It's not any man. Christ is the only one that is the head of the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. I don't think that could be any more simpler. He's the head over all things to the church. And also, He's head, of, head of, uh, of all things to the church, but when we, we see in the context of a local church that there are going to be elders, that the elders are going to have, they're going to rule over these local congregations. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says, The elders who are among you I exhort, who I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that be revealed. So we have several scriptures along with this one talking about the elders, that they're going to be, uh, they're going to have authority uh, of a local congregation. But notice what he says in verse Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he says, the elders who are among you. And so we only see elders uh, in ruling over the local, only over the local congregation in which they are a member of. We do not see elders ruling over multiple churches, and we see no office, uh, at least on this earth, other than the, of course, we have the regular church members, but also we have the offices of deacons and also as elders. We do not see any a person that has more authority than an elder over, or elders, a plurality of elders over the local church. And so, uh, 
this 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 picture is from Bible.ca. This place is it, they have a lot of good resources. That I think it's pretty great. But this is a pretty simple explanation of what we see in the organization of local church, really from the very beginning. And these red circles really represent a uh, represent a church which have various amounts of members, and that they are uh, the local congregations, and they are autonomous of each other. And uh, really, just for some historical context, we have some scriptures that really that, that deal with this idea of presbyters, which are another name for elders and deacons, and they don't really recognize any office bigger than the elder or the presbyter. We see the epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians talking about being subject to the presbyters. And in 100 AD with the epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, really similar language to the, the epistle of Peter says, giving all fitting honor to the presbyters among you. So again, even after uh, the New Testament was finished, shortly thereafter, really don't see anything larger than the elders uh, and that they are simply have authority over the congregation in which they are members of. Now, also... Uh, a quote from the History of the Christian Church by Philip Schaff. He says, The oldest links in the chains of Roman bishops are veiled in impenetrable darkness. At that early day, the government of the congregation composed of Jewish and Gentile Christian elements was not so centralized as it afterwards became. Furthermore, the earliest fathers with a true sense of distinction between the apostolic and episcopal offices do not reckon Peter among the bishops of Rome at all. And I want to make the, the, real, the main point is this fellow saying, according to history, that these congregations were not so centralized as, the, as it afterwards became. That really, the centralization, really don't see a lot of, uh, or really none of the centralization that comes after uh, throughout history. And uh, really, again, we see a distinction between the apostolic and the episcopal, episcopal offices, really talking about these, this idea of, of elders here, that the elders uh, and the apostles were different, that they were uh, distinguishing the power and authority that they had. Now, by 250 A.D., we really see history shows us that the organization as found in the Bible was kind of really discarded, and we now have one bishop that could actually be over multiple churches. So if you think back, we see that there was going to be a plurality of elders over one church, and now by 250 A.D., you see one man actually can be ahead over multiple churches. And now, by 300 A.D., we have this call, this fellow called a metropolitan, in which he is actually now can be head over multiple churches, but he also has authority over these bishops. So we have another layer of the hierarchy. And by 381 AD, we have this idea of a patriarch, which is really just a forerunner of the pope, in which the pope could be is ahead over the metropolitan, and the metropolitan is the head over all of these uh, bishops. And now currently. Uh, we have this hierarchy of the Roman church starts with the laity of the regular people, deacons, the priests, then the bishops, then the archbishops, then the cardinals, and then finally the pope. Now again, where's the Bible for all this? We don't see the Bible is completely silent about all this stuff. We do not see anything uh, remotely uh, close in the scriptures to what currently the Roman Catholic church is organized by. So again, 
going back to this to the original point is you know going back to well if the, if the Bible is a Catholic book well if the Bible is a Catholic book how come it contradicts uh, the uh, the Roman Catholic Church so so much we do not see this organization spoken of anywhere in the New Testament next point is apostolic succession and here's a quote from a book called the faith of our fathers page 54 kind of give you a good understanding of what we talk about this idea of apostolic succession it says there is no just ground for denying to the apostolic teachers of the 19th century in which we live a prerogative clearly possessed by those of the first especially as the divine word nowhere intimates that this unerring guidance was to die with the apostles on the contrary, as the apostles transmitted to their successors their power to preach, to baptize, to ordain, to confirm, etc., they must have also handed down to them the no less essential gift of infallibility. So, we go from the very beginning, because there's no just ground for denying to the apostolic teachers of the 19th century the prerogative clearly possessed by those of the first. So he's saying, of course, he says, when he says apostolic, he's talking about these Catholic teachers. He says that they are apostolic teachers, and they should have a prerogative clearly possessed by those of the first. And especially as the divine word, no word says that this unerring guidance was to die with the apostles. So he's saying these Catholic teachers, these apostolic teachers of the 19th century, apostolic teachers of the 19th century, that they would have unerring guidance from, assumably, the Spirit. Now he says, we're talking about these gifts of the apostles that supposedly they transmitted, transmitted to their successors their power. To, of course, we see that there's some power for us to do all these things, but not everything that they do. But he says they must have also handed down to them the no less essential gift of infallibility. So we have this, this book saying that, well, these apostolic teachers or these Catholic teachers, they're really infallible, that they are successors to the apostles, and therefore, they have the gift of infallibility. Now, really, is, is that really the case? And I think it's pretty plain to see that, you know, whether or not that is what that writer was saying is true or not. But um, so we talk about this idea of successors to the apostle. We actually have an example of this. We see uh, that, of course, Judah, uh, Judas being a disciple, he has now killed himself. In Acts chapter 1, and so now there has to be somebody else to replace him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, it says, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of them must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, for somebody to be an apostle, or somebody to be among this group, what did they have to do? Well, they had to accompany them all the time. Lord Jesus went in and out among them, beginning from the baptism of John and went to the day when he was taking up from us. So really, he has to be an eyewitness of Jesus and for him to be an apostle. And so is any man alive today an eyewitness of Jesus? I think that we can pretty well, uh, unless John's still walking among us today somewhere, there's not an eyewitness of Jesus anywhere on this planet. And so, because of that, you can't be an apostle. And just a side note, we got a lot of people nowadays claiming to be an apostle, and that's just ridiculous. I mean, there's no, there's no Bible, there's no authority for any of that, 
for any of that stuff. And so if you're not an eyewitness to Jesus, you can't be an apostle. And so if you can't be an apostle, that means you can't have the authority of the apostles. So this fellow in the last slide talking about the infallibility or this unerring guidance of the apostles. Well, just, just you know, if you're not an eyewitness of Jesus, it does not mean that you can have the authority of the apostles. And so it really starts really, uh, really uh, giving a lot of doubt to this idea of whether or not these teachers are actually a successor to the apostle and that they are infallible as well. Also, can they simply prove that what they speak from themselves is infallible? Can they do that? The apostles could. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 12, Peter, uh, Paul says, The signs of an apostle will wrought among you. And he's talking about himself that he, had, he was an apostle and he had the powers of the apostle and he could prove that as well. And also when we see this concept throughout scriptures, uh, like 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 John 4 about this idea of testing all things or testing these false prophets or these false apostles. If you kind of reason with that, if we have to test those things or we have to test people to see whether or not they say that they are true, then that means that they can prove that what they say is true. And so can they prove to us that this is true? Do they have some type of power that they can give us? Can they, have, can they show us some type of wonder or miracle to prove that they are infallible? I haven't seen one yet. And also, we see throughout history with the Catholic Church and these various teachers of the Catholic Church that their doctrines change pretty regularly. And they're teaching one thing, and a fellow may come along later, another pope may come along, and he may say, well, he may reverse that, or he may br bring up uh, some other teaching. And so again, that brings up this question of how come, they, how, how come these infallible men can't get their story right? And if we look back at Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 3, when, when Jude talks about this faith that was once for all delivered to us, well, really... If these men are really claiming this idea that they are infallible and that they are being uh, guided by the Spirit, really what that means is that the faith really wasn't delivered to us. And so we have a contradiction of the Scriptures as well. And, um, you know, really, with the, this evidence that we see here, I really, I'm really more convinced that these men simply are not telling the truth and they are really infallible, even though that they may tell us otherwise because there's no way that they can prove that they are really infallible. And uh, these so-called successors, they are not the same as apostles. They don't have this unerring guidance. They are not, uh, uh, they do not have this gift in which whatever they say is from God himself and that they are infallible and that they, can, that they can teach no error. All right, last point. Can a priest forgive sins? And, uh, if any of you, y'all probably watch TV or watched a movie and you've seen this concept if you, of this person going into this booth and they confess their sins to this Catholic priest. That's probably what you're most familiar with. And this, and this idea that we're fixing to talk to, that's not necessarily the same. There's some similarities, but I want to give you kind of a context of what we're fixing to go into. So, and it's really this idea of absolution. And it says, absolution is an integral part of the sacrament of penance in Roman Catholicism. 
The penitent makes a sacramental confession of all mortal sins to a priest and prays an act of contrition. The priest then assigns a penance and imparts absolution in the name of the Trinity on behalf of Christ himself using a fixed sacramental formula. The, the traditional formula is, May our Lord Jesus Christ absolve you, and by his authority I absolve you from every bond of excommunication and interdict so far as my power allows you and your needs require. Thereupon I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So going back, uh, they have to make these these people have to make a, a confession of all mortal sins. And, and we're not going to get into this, but there's a difference. There, there's two types of sins in the Catholic Church, a mortal sin, a venial sin. The mortal sin is really just the bad stuff. And it's, so you have to make this confession to this priest and then pray. And then he goes through this little thing. And then he says, Thereupon I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Now, also from Catholic.com, a really bold statement. Uh, it says, Is the Catholic who confesses his sins to a priest any better off than the non-Catholic who confesses directly to God? Yes, first he seeks forgiveness the way Christ intended. So there you have it. Catholics say, well, you know, this is the way Christ intended for you to do. Don't confess those directly to God. you got you got to confess your sins to this priest. And then this priest is going to absolve you from your sins. Now, if you remember from this last thing, uh, this last slide says the sacramental confession. This is known as auricular confession. And this doctrine was not officially adopted until 1215 A.D. So again, uh, this doctrine of confessing this, uh, these things to the priest uh, was not adopted until 1200 years after Christ. So again, you know, Apparently, according to Catholic.com, the Catholic Church, what they claim to be a true church, well, they weren't seeking forgiveness the way Christ intended until 1215 A.D. So, again, it kind of gives you an idea of the ridiculousness of what's going on here. And also, it contradicts Scripture. So now, not only do you have one mediator, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that being Jesus, now you have another mediator, this priest that's required to absolve you from your sins. Uh, there's one verse, uh, uh, several scriptures, John chapter 20, verse 21 through 23, that they will use and try to give some idea that, you know, since the apostles apparently had this power to forgive sins, that they transfer that, that, that power to their successors, that being these Catholic priests. And uh, John chapter 20, verse 21 through 23 says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So a Catholic will sit there and say, Well, here it is. What he's saying is that these people had the power to, just this, this innate power to uh, forgive sins as really they seem fit. Now, the problem with this is there's, I think there's two main points that we have to look at is, A, he's, this is Jesus talking to the apostles, and we have to remember that the apostles were going to go out and proclaim the gospel. And a person, when they heard the gospel, they had either two choices. They either could believe the gospel, be saved, or not believe. And so if they believed the gospel, they would have their sins forgiven. If they did not believe, their sins would be retained. Also, another point I think we have to remember is that the apostles were being guided by the Holy Spirit. So if you remember, like in 1 Corinthians 
6, I believe, when Paul makes this list of these sins, which uh, if people continued in those things, they would not inherit the kingdom of God. And we see, we, we see uh, several times in Scripture these lists, or these, really these sins, in which a person uh, did not, uh, or, or did not repent of those sins, that they would be lost. Now, we have to remember that they did not uh, write these things of their own power. They, they, they did not decide arbitrarily what sins that they were going to, that they were going to determine were, uh, real, were sins and things that were not sins. And those things came from the Spirit. So when they determined what was a sinful activity, it wasn't because of they themselves, it was because the Spirit was guiding them. They were inspired and that, that God Himself was showing them what was sinful and what was not sinful. And again, does this say anything about Catholic priests? We're just in the context of Christ and the apostles here, not the priest. And we just talked about this idea of these apostolic successors that's simply really not true. It cannot be proven true. And so, uh, again, we can't prove that they are these priests or successors to the apostles. It's not these priests are not spoken of in John 20. So we really can't apply this to, John, to the priest as well. Also, I think it's important that we look at Acts chapter 8, verse 22, when Peter was talking to Simon the sorcerer, uh, when, when Simon sinned, Peter tells him to repent and, and pray to God. And what's interesting about this is Peter, being apostle, he does not say, you know, repent, and then I'll, I'll absolve you of your sins. That I will, that I will pray over you or, or, or I will do something to absolve you of your sins. He doesn't say anything about that. And so, again, uh, he, he tells them that really we see in that context the power to forgive sins was really with God alone. That Peter in and of himself did not have any power at all to determine whether Simon the sorcerer's sin could be forgiven. A few, a uh, few, uh, couple more slides here that I really want to make clear is really the Catholic Church is a church of change and confusion. And these are just a list of just several doctrines, and we have the date in which those doctrines came to be recognized. And you can see all of these, and really we see uh, the doctrine of purgatory, 593 A.D., no Bible for that. Instrumental music, 670 A.D., no Bible for that. Celibacy for priests, contradicts the Bible for that one, and the baptism by sprinkling that standard for all, again, contradicts the Bible. 1545, we decide tradition is equal to Bible, you know, and this kind of, that's really where we're at. Uh, The infallibility of the Pope in 1870 A.D., which, you know, good luck with that. We had the sinner's prayer in 1950. The Assumption of Mary into Heaven after Death in 1950 A.D. I don't know what that's all about. That's, uh, you know, how you even know or think about that, I don't even understand. Then we have the Immaculate Conception of Mary in 1954 in A.D. as well. And there's no Bible for any of these teachings or just plain up, straight up contradicts the Bible. So again, the Bible is a Catholic book. We really got a lot of problems with that. The Catholics really didn't do a, lot of, really do a good job of making the Bible if this their book. And, um, you know, really, this last point, as we go into this time of invitation, really didn't talk about 
uh, talk about being a Christian or what it means to be saved or how do you be saved. But we have to understand that the only way we can find salvation is through believing and obeying God's Word, not what a church says, not what a tradition says. Now, when you become a Christian, you become part of the church, and then you become a member of the local church, but the church itself has no power to save. It has no, really no power to determine uh, what, is God's, what is God's Word. The only person that can determine what is God's Word is God Himself. And that's only, the only way we can find salvation is through believing and obeying that word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 15, there's a verse that's using it in a little different context than what Paul is using it in, in. But he says, and that from childhood, he's writing Timothy, he says, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And really, the point that he's making, again, it's a little different context, but really, if we're going to be made wise for salvation through faith was in Christ Jesus, the only way we can find that is through the Scriptures, or at least somebody teaching us through the Scriptures. That's the only way we're going to find salvation, not in some church or any some type of tradition of man. So, I, so as we go into this time, if you would like to be a Christian, remember we have to do, we have to believe and obey God's words. We have to do what God says for us to be saved, uh, to be saved. And so if you'd like to know more about that, we certainly would like to talk to you, discuss those things with you. If you want to become a Christian, we certainly like to make those like to make that available as soon as possible. And also, if you are a Christian and you need the prayers of the saints, you have some sin that you would like to uh, make known that you need that uh, make known uh, to us, uh, we certainly offer this time of invitation now as we stand and as we sing, will you come?